thrilled to have three not-so-fun episodes out of the way, and not-so-thrilled to be in Melbourne's second stage of lockdown, which of course I'm not because I'm in a dive hut on the shores of Ross Island. <sighs> we flattened the curve and mistakes were made, not everyone behaved responsibly, but I think we'll flatten the curve again. We seem to seem to have the basics down and I'm grateful that I'm not living in some places where things seem really badly out of control. But on with episode 102, Ellsworth's last Antarctic gasp. That everyone didn't fall at his feet for crossing Antarctica, in some cases because critical appraisal deemed the track of the flight of the Polar Star insufficiently transcontinental to warrant the name, deflated Lincoln Ellsworth's ego, so recently and so professionally stroked by the Australians who celebrated his return aboard the Discovery 2. Wilkins had hoped that years of service in Ellsworth's corner might convince the billionaire dilettante to lend him the Wyatt Earp, so he might lead his own expedition south and kick some serious goals on Australia's behalf. But the Wyatt Earp would, for the time being, remain in Ellsworth's possession. Wilkins took the ship to Norway for a refit, on the off chance his boss might let him take it for a ride, a la Nansen lending Amundsen the Fram. Unable to convince Ellsworth to loan him the Wyatt Earp, Wilkins worked a new groove, encouraging Ellsworth to return to the ice and put the naysayers in their place by flying from Enderby Land to the Bay of Wales over the South Geographic Pole. With an American operating on their recently officially claimed Australian Antarctic Territory, the pertinent act coming into effect in 1936, the Australian government might feel compelled to establish a new Antarctic expedition, and who would be on hand with a ship and a veteran crew but Sir Hubert, ready to accept his nation's commission and do what he did best. Wilkins presented the idea to Ellsworth who, as was his desultory mean, asked Wilkins to look into airframes they might use while he meandered about in Canada. Wilkins recommended a return to Northrop's facility in California, and Ellsworth turned up there en route to further meanderings in Mexico. Northrop found Ellsworth every bit as difficult to deal with as everyone else who encountered him, but had an airframe suitable for high-latitudes work if the billionaire ever decided he did, in fact, want to return to Antarctica. After a year of Wilkins' cajoling and flattery, Ellsworth felt almost ready to begin thinking about a new expedition. Once sold on a return to the ice, Ellsworth wanted to fly over and map the coast adjacent to James Ellsworth land to buttress the US association with the area he named after his father and claimed for his nation by throwing a flag at it. He sought State Department advice on where they thought he might best serve US interests in the South, but they didn't see his proposed expedition, run by an Australian, crewed by Norwegians and carrying an aircraft piloted by a Canadian, Joe Limeburner once more taking leave from Canadian Airways to make a repeat performance in the series and shifting from reserve to first pilot, and featuring no ground control points to link the aerial photographs he took with, once more, his hand held like a camera, where his large format surveying cameras should be, as carrying a great deal of American geographic weight. Sir Hubert, just when I thought I was out they pull me back in, Wilkins, convinced the mining magnate air and dilettante, giving dilettantery a bad name, 
that the Northrop Delta Northrop recommended they use didn't have the range to fly over a possible 300 nautical mile band of pack ice associated with that part of the Antarctic coast and still make an effective survey of the coast nearest James Ellsworth land. Far better to base their operations in Enderby land, where international focus would ensure his efforts received maximum attention, and where the mountains were, Wilkins assured his natural beauty-loving cash cow off the back of assurances made by members of the Norwegian whaling fleet, far more spectacular than those on the peninsula. Starting from Enderby land and making it to Little America could really show those who derided the polar star flight what was what, knocking all previous Antarctic aviation feats out of the park, depending on who your PR agent is. Wilkins brought together a largely new crew of Norwegians, the only previous members of the Wyatt Earps contingent willing to work with Ellsworth again, being Loritz Livag, signing on as first mate, second engineer Spur, and steward Dahl. The Norwegian crew would serve under new captain Londa Johansen. The doctor, Harmon Rhodes, and the radio operator, Frederick Seed, were from the USA, and Burton Trerese, from Nova Scotia, quit a job bush flying in Quebec to join as second pilot and aircraft mechanic. The ship took on board an example of Northrop's Delta design, mounted on skis. Effectively a Gamma with a larger fuselage, the Delta design aimed to fill the airline niche in parallel to the Gamma taking the mail plane opportunities. The 1934 US federal legislation that prevented airlines operating over mountains or at night other than in multi-engined aircraft that could maintain altitude with one engine inoperative, shut the Delta design out of the market Northrop imagined it taking by storm. Northrop produced more Deltas than it did Gammas, but it still wasn't the big sales spinner the company sought. The expedition also carried a smaller, float-mounted Aeronca Model K on the poop deck to act as scout. Wilkins sent the ship to Cape Town while he attended to other business. Wilkins was canny to recognise the Australian government felt nervous about happenings in the Southern Ocean. The 1937 Imperial Conference of British Commonwealth Leaders saw Leo Amory's grand ambition of an uncontested British claim over the entire Antarctic continent further out of reach than during the previous convention 11 years earlier, in spite of the highly successful British Graham Land expedition. The boundaries of a daily land's imposition on territory British and Australian interests wanted recognised as belonging to the Commonwealth were no better delineated 11 years on from the last time anyone broached the matter. The Southern Ocean provided employment for over 10,000 people at this point. Norwegian whaling interests hunted where they pleased to the south of Australia and South Africa, setting ashore to make claims and dropping flags from their reconnaissance aircraft. German whaling interests were ramping up under Voltart's Fat Plan, and Japanese vessels were making inroads on Southern Ocean rockles, the Japanese whalers' approach to their catch differing to their European counterparts in that the whale meat went to market for human consumption instead of into ovens for conversion to cattle feed. While United States' interests didn't extend to the factory vessels and chasers operating in the Southern Ocean at that point, those uppity ingrate post-colonials were flying and half-tracking all over the snow as though they owned the place, don't you know? Something must be done. Something noble and British and above all else, cheap. Because the Empire got all wobbly with the war, and the coffers weren't what they once were. Commonwealth nations held nominal territorial claims over two-thirds of Antarctica, 
that only the Falkland Islands dependency received tacit recognition from other nations, and only pragmatic Norwegian whaling magnates gave explicit recognition in the form of licensing fees and levies. Conference attendees concurred that meteorological stations in Enderby land constituted the least expensive means by which to satisfy United States and Norwegian stipulations that occupation comprised the only possible valid territorial market, but no one felt sufficiently pressed on the matter to actually commit resources to that goal. Surely no one was going to go south and occupy space anytime soon, besides the Argentines on Laurie Island, who'd occupied Bruce's formerly British-occupied space since 1903. I mentioned in the last political catch-up that British bureaucracy tended to clog up any time immediate action wasn't indicated, and I think I've managed to put a finger on why after thinking long and hard about recent upheavals in my own life. People operating inside a bureaucratic structure can get so caught up in never accepting blame for anything untoward that they sometimes cocoon themselves in the minutiae of their role and their role alone, refusing to act when called on to do so by anyone they can safely ignore because never acting means you can't ever do anything that might attract opprobrium. You also never achieve anything beyond the bare minimum stipulated in your contract, but once you've reached the level of promotion and reward you're happy with, it might seem a solid course of action to never act unless to fail to do so might risk losing the accustomed privileges. The larger the bureaucracy, the more layers at which someone might gum up any initiative by deciding the benefits of any action don't outweigh the risks prescribing the action by their authority, or finding some passive-aggressive path to the same result if curtailing an initiative is, in itself, too proactive and likely to attract unwanted negative attention. Once more, excessive talks or Commonwealth bureaucracy arrive at the pleasing conclusion that no one need do anything because while everything wasn't just tickety-boo as things stood, no one was willing to wear the blame likely to arise if doing anything made things less tickety-boo conference attendee Richard Casey pushed for a Commonwealth collaboration to at least establish meteorological stations in the sectors claimed for British interests, giving Sir Hubert Wilkins some degree of vindication. But Lord Casey couldn't get the bureaucratic levers working to his advantage this time, and no one came to the Commonwealth Party. Sir Douglas Mawson chafed at British insistence that French territorial claims not be nulled in order to avoid anyone else chafing at the British late arrival at the Antarctic Party in light of Argentine occupation of Laurie Island. And if Commonwealth claims are expected to operate on the sector model, so too must Commonwealth acceptance of other nations' claims. Citing that Dumont de Ville's claiming ceremony took place on an island, and that the magic powers of flags and proclamations can't travel across any body of salt water, and that his own claiming ceremonies on the continent itself were matters of the strictest solemnity, and therefore better than what must have been, in his mind, French bacchanals featuring the worst of Catholic fripperies and excesses, Mawson managed to convince enough government officials to set boundaries on a daily land at the furthest extent east and west that the Astrolabe and Zélie surveyed in the early 19th century. And that's the boundary of the French territory as marked on those maps that actually acknowledge Commonwealth territorial claims today, though equivalent Argentine and Chilean maps have some different boundaries drawn on them but we'll address those matters anon. Unfortunately for Commonwealth interests, nations not privy to the conference proceedings didn't realise they weren't going to ramp up attempts at claims and occupations in the years to follow, as the bureaucrats hoped, and did exactly that. 
There's many reasons to not have an empire, but if none of the ethical ones convince you to not invade other nations and set their people against themselves in an endless process of divide and conquer, simply the fact that organising and coordinating the damn thing such that the assumptions fed into the reasoning behind its management don't quickly fall away from reality and lead to logically valid but practically unsound conclusions should be. In the austral summer of 1937, Melbournean meteorologist Alan Cornish travelled to Fremantle to join the Discovery 2 on a voyage along the Antarctic coasts south of Australia, the voyage ending in Dunedin. Listed on the manifest as a scientist, Cornish constituted Australia's administration over the Antarctic regions it claimed to annex. His brief required he observe with an eye for promising meteorological station sites along the coasts he sighted, and that he report on the whaling vessels and methods he observed, including any radio traffic the ship intercepted. Unwilling to pay to actually administer the region, the Australian government sought to get the most information about what was happening in its purported patch for the minimum investment of people and money. I'm all for piggyback data gathering, but to pretend that a lone meteorologist pushed aboard a Discovery Institute vessel constitutes an administrative program is a very long bow to draw. The oceanographic voyage into which his government lobbed him afforded Cornish no opportunities to make landings and doesn't get a lot of attention in Australia's national narrative about our connections to Antarctica, because it was a complete non-event in terms of forging that narrative which we eventually wove around Mawson. Mawson, Mawson, he's our man. If he can't do it, the government will let it lie idle till the situation gets to the point inaction suddenly seems worse than action, and then they'll light the blue touch paper and put a rocket up someone while hectically trying to rectify whatever the problem other national interests have thrown in their path. Doesn't quite scan or rhyme. While Wilkins got the new Ellsworth expedition underway, Ellsworth headed to Bournemouth in the UK, and tramped along the coastline 18 miles a day to build up his sledging fitness. The positive attention Sir Hubert received for his work searching for missing Russian aviators in the Arctic, mentioned by Jeff Maynard in episode 86, stuck in Ellsworth's craw, and he sent a telegram to the Australian, Please stop press notices and photographs of yourself in connection expedition stop. Meanwhile, he made his own media deals with the publication rights for his new project, selling to the New York Times and the North American Newspaper Alliance. Ellsworth joined the Wyatt Earp in Cape Town after a stint, either mountaineering or big game hunting or both in East Africa, to keep his Bournemouth fitness up. Wilkins set out to Cape Town via Australia, and while at home wrote to Lord Casey to ask what he might do to further Australian interests while in the South. His Norwegian colleagues assured Wilkins that Mawson's claiming ceremony at Proclamation Island wasn't taken seriously in Norway, and Wilkins felt it his duty to report on this perception to Australian leaders, and to do what he could to rectify the situation to Australia's favour. Wilkins thought he'd found a technical loophole in the legal arrangements of the new expedition, and that he could act as a free agent while in Antarctica, because his role in Ellsworth's new project was written up as advisor. Wilkins perceived himself as independent of the expedition, where a more honest appraisal of his role by Ellsworth might have seen Wilkins cited in the paperwork as leader, and excluded him from acting on Australia's behalf. The Australian Department of External Affairs demurred, arguing that to expect Wilkins to repeat a claim on the territory 
would indicate Australia acted as though it didn't take the ceremony allegedly already placing that territory under its aegis seriously. The Australian bet remained on Mawson's legacy. And besides, Ellsworth already stated to the press that he didn't intend claiming territory during this new venture, so there wasn't anything to feel concerned about. It was Director General of the Australian Federal Department of Health, of all things, John Cumpston, who suggested Ellsworth might be entreated to make claims on Australia's behalf while flying over Enderby land. This certainly sits well with the Commonwealth bureaucratic tendency to look for the cheapest option requiring the smallest advocacy on their part. But with the Enderby land coast already mapped, and Britain holding to the sector model, drawing lines from the margin of coast past expeditions explored to the pole, the value of Ellsworth dropping or proclaiming anything on Australia's behalf in the hinterland didn't carry any geographical merit in the eyes of Cumpston's more cartographically-minded bureaucrats, thereby negating any need to work out what you might offer a desultory billionaire to convince him to act on the behalf of a nation he visited once, and sort of seemed to have a moderately agreeable time in. Mawson and John King Davis were both still steadily pushing that Australia should take Antarctic resources and proximity more seriously, advocating at least meteorological stations on the continental coast. Mawson placing a feather in Sir Hubert Wilkins' cap by way of pragmatic necessity. Richard Casey, back from the 1937 Imperial Conference and employed as Treasurer and Minister for Foreign Affairs in the Federal Government under Prime Minister Joseph Lyons, advocated Australia fund an expedition to complete the coastal mapping, but the discovery too. The only ship capable of carrying out such a voyage available to Australian interests at the time was booked up solid through to late 1939. It doesn't matter how well funded your research project, a marine survey without a confirmed booking on a vessel is just a bunch of chumps standing on a wharf while the salt sea air corrodes their instruments and sampling gear. Never attempt extended marine science without the appropriate apparel, which in the Southern Ocean, which in the Southern Ocean comprises a sturdy ship. Impressed by the bang for the buck, though that should really be the pop for the pound, achieved by the British Graemland expedition, Raymond Priestley, at that point Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, pressed that the Australian government should commission John Rymill to lead a new Australian expedition to really firm up the national claim on the Antarctic sector lying to the nation's south. But as mentioned in episode 99, Rymel never went south again. Secretary to the Department of External Affairs, William Hodgson, allayed Wilkins' concerns by revealing secret plans to develop a new map of the coast between McRobertson Land and Princess Elizabeth Land, effectively erasing Lars Christensen Land by active cartographic fit and demonstrating Australian administration of the region and replacing all but a politely placatory handful of Norwegian place names with Commonwealth ones. Digression. I recently saw an advertisement for roles on a place name committee within the British Antarctic Survey, seeking people with expertise in a range of things, some of which I have expertise in. But for my Australian citizenship and dearth of two years living in the UK in the past decade, including one contiguous 12-month period, I would apply, land a slot, and get with the naming. And likely get in trouble 20 years down the track, when someone realised I love acrostic poetry, and then worked out what I'd written across the maps and charts of the White Continent. 
Hodgson didn't give Wilkins any specific instructions about bolstering Australian territorial claims in Antarctica, but did afford him general authority to examine and report on the Australian Antarctic Territory, which sounds like administration over a territory if you tune just off the station and mess with the graphic equaliser. British bureaucrats urged the Australian government to once more offer all assistance that the expedition might require, as they'd done during both Byrd and Ellsworth's most recent expeditions, as tacit and cheap means to announce to everyone involved that the territory belonged to Australia. But Australian bureaucrats balked at the British idea, concerned that it might go to American interests in the same manner as sending British radio operators to the Phoenix Islands, just in time to try to gazump Richard Black's Pacific Imperial juggernaut. See subsequent episodes about the United States Antarctic Service Expedition, or USASE, which I will pronounce as USASI, for personal reasons that will make exactly one person giggle on exactly one occasion. Wilkins told Hodgson that he would get Ellsworth to write a letter to the Australian government, in which he acknowledged the Australian Antarctic Territory in a similar manner to his acknowledgement of the Falkland Islands dependency when planning to operate out of Deception Island in the Polar Star Voyages, not realising that Ellsworth was about to start operating under secret instructions to claim Enderby land for the USA. US Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, alert to Australian manoeuvring to leverage their agenda off the back of Ellsworth's efforts, sent instructions to the US Consul in Cape Town to get Ellsworth on side and to provide him with the methods and means for best making a territorial claim on the United States' behalf. The Consul arrived on the wharf shortly before the Wyatt Earp threw off lines and read the official memorandum to its target. The Consul didn't allow Ellsworth to keep the document, as that posed too great a risk of someone else discovering it. Simply reading it to him also gave the USA deniability if Ellsworth blabbed, which he did, but we'll get to that. The Consul's visit may have sparked some suspicion in Wilkins, but the memorandum in addition to instructions regarding how to assert US Dominion and how to report that assertion after the event, included an instruction to keep all instructions secret from Sir Hubert, including that instruction. Delighted at this federal pat on the head, Ellsworth ignored his previous denial that he intended making claims for the United States within the area claimed by Australia. Wilkins' proposed letter outlining Ellsworth's acknowledgement of the validity of the Australian Antarctic Territory never arose as the dilettante, ignored by his government in the lead-up to all his previous endeavours, finally felt the thrill of federal recognition and responsibility, and wasn't about to let the good old US of A down. No, sir. The voyage south, kicking off on the 29th of October 1938, saw the Wyatt Earp wallowing in the Southern Ocean for two months in particularly unpleasant conditions, and a bad fall into the engine room saw Ellsworth dislocate his shoulder. The crew enjoyed three days' respite from the Southern Ocean at the Kerguelens, where they shot a lot of rabbits and ducks for the larder. A planned stop at Heard Island fell by the wayside due to the dearth of a safe anchorage and the conditions remaining filthy. When the ship finally reached the edge of the pack ice, lying far further north than in the previous austral summer, the Wyatt Earp was still more than 500 nautical miles from the continental margin. Far too far for a transcontinental flight to make a start. Captain Johansen worked the Wyatt Earp into the ice and spent a further month and a half reaching Antarctica itself. 
the ship pushed against the ice, backed water and rammed, slowly making progress, but at some cost. The hull took the blows with all the resilience of an ice-strengthened wooden vessel, but the ice did catch at the sheathing and tore some sizeable wooden sections off, just below the waterline. By shifting material to the far side and applying a block and tackle between fast ice and the masthead, they raised the scar in the hull above the waterline, and the carpenter effected repairs from the ice, and the wired erp continued bashing its way south. The overtaxed engine sent sparks up the funnel, and one of these landed on the doped fabric wing of the Aronka, starting the highly flammable materials alight. Quick work with a fire extinguisher by Limeburner prevented the destruction of the airframe and the possible loss of the ship and all its complement. Had the fire taken hold and the aircraft burnt fast and fierce enough to preclude anyone getting the flaming mass over the side, there's a fair chance the 19,000 litres of petrol stored in drums along the bulwarks would have caught the fever and seen the white earth burn to the waterline, perhaps briefly setting fire to the surrounding sea in the alarming manner unleashed petrochemicals sometimes do. Bad news for all involved, no doubt. The Wyatt Earp approached the Amory Ice Shelf on New Year's Day. Limeburner made a scouting flight seeking open water, while the ship lay up in a pool large enough for the Aronka to make a takeoff run, but found the ice packed hard against the coast. During their quarter year in close quarters aboard the Wyatt Earp, Wilkins and Ellsworth confided their secret and conflicting national territorial imperatives and began a series of attempts at working past each other to advantage their own nation's agenda. Wilkins convinced Ellsworth the flight program would be better able to achieve the billionaire's goals if they started from the Ingrid Christensen Kist. This took the expedition to the Svenna Islands, discovered by Clarius Mickelson in 1935, but never before visited, allowing Ellsworth some new first footfall opportunities and kept them clear of the area Sir Douglas Mawson willingly, and much to the dismay of subsequent Australian geographic bureaucrats, labelled Wilkes Land. The Aronka went onto the water again, and Limeburner and Wilkins made a flight, scouting for a suitable site to get the ski-equipped Northrop airborne, but no suitable skiway showed, either in the sea ice or on the mainland, where steep and crevassed glaciers met the sea. The Wyatt Earp transited east. On the 7th of January, a span of one-year-old sea ice between the shore and the nearby Rower Island group, and held in place by a grounded iceberg, was deemed the best option, and the delta, drawn from the hold and reassembled to lie atop the lazarette to await its moment, continued to wait, due to crook weather. Strong winds and the newly ungrounded iceberg that had held the sea ice fast caused cracking in the selected sea ice surface and the Wyatt Earp was on the move once more, looking for a safer harbour and faster ice. Slow progress, with the ship's boat acting as scout and pilot to lead the larger vessel safely through the moving maze of bergs and flows. Under the guise of geological investigation and in company with Limeburner, the Canadian serving as official Commonwealth witness, Wilkins went ashore on the tallest island in the Rao group on the 8th of January 1939 and landed again on the continent two days later in the margins of the Vestfold Hills, each time furtively raising an Australian flag while out of sight of the ship and recording his visit in an enamelled metal canister deposited surreptitiously in a can of rocks. 
The documentation only went so far as to record his presence and the date, in line with Lord Casey's instruction that Wilkins shouldn't claim the area, as that might be perceived as acknowledging Mawson's previous efforts as invalid. To whom it may concern, to administrate the area referred to in an order in Council dated 7th February 1933, wherein it is ordered as follows, that part of His Majesty's dominions in the Antarctic Seas, which comprises all the islands and territories other than a daily land, which are situated south of the 60th degree of south latitude and lying between the 160th degree of east longitude and the 45th degree of east longitude, is hereby placed under the authority of the Commonwealth of Australia. I place this document as a record of having put foot on the Antarctic mainland in several places and upon several of the islands in the vicinity between latitudes 68 degrees south and latitude 69 degrees south, and between longitudes 77 east and 79 east, and having flown the flag of Australia, leave it with this record on the land bordering the present continental glacier surface at approximately latitude 68 degrees 30 minutes south and 79 degrees east longitude. Date 11th January 1939, Hubert Wilkins, signed and dated Hubert Wilkins 11th January 1939. The second proclamation and flag in a can deposit featured a copy of Walkabout magazine for the entertainment of future visitors to the site. Each landing, Wilkins collected some local representative geology to return to Australia for examination for mineral wealth. During this period, the Aronka made two further scouting flights and on the second one and a half hour effort, found a suitable site to get the Delta airborne from the coast adjacent to the Vestfold Hills and the unnamed aircraft went over the bulwark for a test flight on the 11th. Lineburner gave the Delta his experienced thumbs up, but examination of the sea ice showed the surface too crappy and the underlying thickness too thin to allow a takeoff with the full fuel load necessary to cross the continent. The crew gave the aircraft some fuel, a sledge, five weeks emergency supplies and trail equipment sufficient to get the aviators to the coast if they experienced mechanical difficulties. Wilkins gave Ellsworth two copies of a claiming proclamation with only the time and location left blank, and a copper canister in which to biff one copy out the window when the Delta turned north. This document read, To whom it may concern, having flown on a direct course from latitude 68 degrees 30 minutes south, longitude 79 degrees east to latitude blank degrees south longitude blank degrees east I drop this record together with a flag of the United States of America and claim for my country so far as this act allows the area south of latitude blank degrees south to a distance of 150 miles south of latitude blank degrees south longitude blank degrees east which I claim to have explored dated January blank 1939 Lincoln Ellsworth. Lineburner got them airborne at 1800 hours local. Two hours and 40 minutes later, the Delta returned. Lineburner flew the aircraft down the 79th meridian, climbing first to 7,000 feet over a vast crevasse field, then to 11,500 feet as the continental plateau rose up beneath them. At their furthest extent, only whiteness showed the landscape yielding no landmarks for, according to Ellsworth's estimate, a hundred miles in any direction. 
Ellsworth made an oxygen-deprived estimate of their position, filled out the paperwork, biffed the copper cylinder, and Limeburner turned back toward the Wyatt Earp after one of the least eventful Antarctic flights to date. The Delta returned to the Wyatt Earp to find the ship being battered against a rapidly disintegrating ice flow as the Antarctic did what the Antarctic does and made life difficult. The crew prepared the derrick and lading strops as Limeburner taxied to the ship and the aviators came aboard at the hurry-up, shortly after followed by their steed. On looking over the copy of the claiming document Ellsworth brought back, Wilkins pointed out that the coordinates filling the former blanks constituted a geographic impossibility. Even 15 years after first signing on aboard the Norge as navigator, Ellsworth didn't know what he was doing with compass, sextant, airspeed indicator and chronometer. Wilkins erased the penciled-in geodetic inanity and generated coordinates based on Limeburner's recounting of the flight. 72 degrees south and 79 degrees east. Ellsworth's flight reached 210 nautical miles inland and he claimed 130 nautical miles to either side of the flight path and beyond its terminus for the United States of America, naming the finger-shaped territory the American Highland. Ellsworth professed an ambition to find a better ice runway, but late in the season, facing further adverse wind and ice conditions at that latitude in that season, and likely horrified at the thought of spending at least a month troglodyting at Little America, left even shabbier than last time after several additional winters, waiting for the Wyatt Earp to come to his relief. Ellsworth may have felt pleased when the Wyatt Earp departed on the 13th of January, making for Hobart, to get first mate Levarg to a hospital as quickly as possible after an accident while cutting ice with which to water the ship. The first mate was working on the bergy bits with two companions when one of the former glacier chunks they trusted their weight to threw them into the water. While trying to extricate himself from the wet, the ice closed up on Levarg's leg and crushed his knee. Dr Rhodes deemed surgery necessary and the small sickbay aboard the wallowing Wyatt Earp, an unfit space in which to attempt it. Ice is good at crush injuries, and I'll digress extensively to pontificate on the matter, as this is something I've warned people about on Antarctic shorelines to their bemusement, my words receiving a response similar to that of a dog that's been shown a card trick. It's like this. The Mohs number of ice at 0 degrees Celsius is 1.5, lying between that of talc and gypsum, it grows harder as conditions grow colder, and can reach a Mohs number of 6 at the low end of the Antarctic glacial temperatures, giving it a similar hardness to tool steel. Healthy mammal bones have a Mohs number of about 5, denoting a hardness equivalent to iron, but the spaces those bones surround are where the organs and tissues keeping the monkey in the go-harm realm that marks out the living stuff from the non-living stuff, most of them having very low Mohs numbers, are far less structurally strong and even several hundred kilograms of talc pose a significant threat to the well-being of any monkey unfortunate or dumb enough to get in its way. I most often encounter opportunities to be crushed by ice on shorelines. Ice, lofted onto a shoreline by the tide, lands there gently and with its largest, heaviest surface uppermost, because of the way ice floats in water. It looks banging photogenic, particularly when white ice sits stranded on a dark shoreline, but it's dangerous to get close to it. Besides being top-heavy, even when it's not precariously balanced, 
Hours after the tide recedes, it will become precariously balanced as the foot melts faster than the rest of the structure where the ice comes into contact with the low albedo sediment or rock the whole shebang sits on. The sun warms the geology and the geology melts the lowest layers of the ice. This stuff lets go with as much precursory heraldry as a glacier carving or an iceberg shedding a large fraction of its mass. The volumes are smaller, but once a few hundred kilograms of solid water on the move, it's already more than a fragile monkey can manage. Tide-stranded bergy bits look like boulders, and we're accustomed to boulders staying where they are in all but the most geologically exciting sites and adventure movies. If some dullard is close to a bergy bit when it gets kinetic, Suddenly everyone's having one of the worst days ever and I'm regressing to my time in the trauma cleaning industry because no one else in the team has the stomach for collecting warm brain matter in a bucket to pass along to the next of kin. That sounds melodramatic when we're addressing it in warm and familiar surroundings, but a lot of people don't seem to take ice seriously, even when you can show them an endless stream of YouTube videos of it doing surprising and incredibly violent stuff when no one was expecting it to. Any time the weather is good enough to get out on an Antarctic shoreline, Antarctica seems to smile so benignly on its human visitors that such a sudden, banal and potentially tragic matter as a bergy bit falling over doesn't register on the monkey radar as a potential threat to well-being. Digression over. Wilkins noted a vessel heading south as the white earth departed the ice. The politely dipped flag flying from its masthead comprising a swastika against a white circle within a field of sanguine. Nazi whalers in the service of Voltart's fat plan. Big seas staved in a lot of the bridge structure and tore away stanchions on the weather deck, but the doughty ship and its crew of Norse hardcases made better time northbound than they'd managed on the way south. In light of Ellsworth's incursion into a space Australia was trying to assert as its own, Wilkins sent a message to Canberra encouraging the Australian government to buy the Wyatt Earp and place him in charge of an expedition geared to demonstrate to anyone paying attention, in no uncertain terms, that Australia claimed, administered and looked forward to a bright future occupying its Antarctic territory by establishing an overwinter meteorological and research station on the coast of Enderby Land, requesting £15,000 to cover the purchase of all Ellsworth's equipment presently bobbing about in the Southern Ocean. And he would have got away with it too, if it weren't for those meddling newspaper magnates. Well, he did in a way, in spite of them. But word reached the US powers that be because of them. The contracts Ellsworth made with the New York Times and the North American Newspaper Alliance required all radio traffic be routed through their offices in New York, and a copy of Wilkins' transmission made its way to the State Department, where quizzical eyebrows were raised. Unfortunately for any quizzically raised US State Department eyebrows regarding the intercepted message between Wilkins and Canberra, the Wyatt Earp arrived in Hobart on the 4th of February. In the three weeks since Wilkins' message arrived, Mawson, consulted by the government regarding the ship and eager to see an ice-strengthened vessel on the Australian register, sent a message to Hobart to await Wilkins' arrival. Keep the Wyatt Earp in the Derwent until Lord Casey and a deputation of Royal Australian Navy officers can look it over with an eye to purchasing it for the nation. Stop. Or wording to that end. To Lord Casey's dismay, Ellsworth proudly announced to the press 
that his expedition claimed the land to either side of his flight track, the claimed area gradually growing with each iteration of its expression. A member of the Australian Embassy in Washington, D.C., asked the U.S. State Department if Ellsworth's actions would receive government follow-up, but true to form, the United States refused to endorse any territorial claim in the Antarctic. To the State Department's bureaucrats' dismay, Ellsworth, having finished with Antarctica, began negotiations with the Australian government to sell both the ship and the Northrop Delta it carried. Acting as the federal government's representative, Mawson met with Wilkins and Ellsworth in Sydney on the 9th of February and announced the Navy's satisfaction with the size and state of the Wyatt Earp. Purchase negotiations could proceed. Ellsworth lowballed himself on the deal as only the carelessly rich can manage, and the Australian government deputation fell over themselves to draw up and sign the paperwork. Lord Casey assured the nation that the £4,400 we paid for the ship and aircraft constituted a sound investment in Australia's future profits from Southern Ocean whaling and cough mineral deposits in Antarctica. Cough. Wilkins announced his willingness to act as expedition leader to establish his long, longed-for meteorological station, hopefully the first of many. But Mawson squashed his enthusiasm. The government mandate lay with him, and he intended leading any further Australian effort. After returning to the United States, Ellsworth put forward his own entreaty to Prime Minister Lyons that he and Wilkins be allowed to operate on the Australian government's behalf. The letter, hinting at an extensive dialogue between Wilkins and Ellsworth to decide how to maximise their chances of garnering Australian government endorsement and funding, perhaps even hinting of Wilkins working the typewriter and Ellsworth adding his signature after the thinky bits were all done, reads, Honourable Sir, There is still much exploration to be done in the Princess Elizabeth Land sector of the Antarctic, and I hope that the European situation will be such that it will be reasonably possible to go south for the season of 1940-41. With no intention of claiming any of the area seen for the United States, I have in mind the possibility of making a flight from Princess Elizabeth Land to the Ross Sea. This will necessitate the establishment of a base and might mean wintering in order to start the transantarctic flight early the following season. The base might be suitable for permanent occupation, and I suggest that in the interest of science and international cooperation, if it were possible for your government to make available to me, either under charter or other means, the MS Wyatt Earp for transport, I would supply, establish and fully equip the base in a manner suitable for the observation, collection and transmission of meteorological data customarily supplied to government departments and provide a sum of not less than $4,000 US currency per annum for its maintenance for a term of not less than 10 years. A proviso to such endowment would be that the base be officially known as the Lincoln Ellsworth Observatory. I would be pleased to receive your reply in relation to your tentative reaction to such a proposal, realising, of course, that any comment now made would be tentative and contingent upon future developments in Europe and elsewhere. I remain, sir, yours respectfully, signed, Lincoln Ellsworth. P.S. In the development of any such proposal, I might mention that Sir Hubert Wilkins would be in charge of the details of my expedition. The project stood to stand Australia in good stead, as the first nation to boast a permanent presence in the far south, but the Australian government suddenly scrambling to a war footing, couldn't take advantage of Ellsworth's offer. 
there's a chance that absent the war, they would have ignored Ellsworth and invested in Mawson anyway. But, even with Ellsworth's letterhead at the top and signature at the bottom, I see this as Wilkins' last and best gasp at getting Australia to back him. And the time and the entrenched Australian Antarctic hero were against him. Mawson tried to raise funds to get a volunteer-run Antarctic field station off the ground, but recent drought-mediated fires, rapidly followed by a series of floods, followed by a war, soaked up what charity Australians could afford at the time as the nation continued to slowly farm and manufacture its way out of the effects of the Great Depression. Mawson tried to generate enthusiasm for an Antarctic club in which academics would take their turn in the South for the good of the nation and for no pay. With the Wyatt Earp shuttling supplies and swapping out the volunteer staff each summer, but this never got off the ground either. The government placed its new acquisition in the care of the Royal Australian Navy, among whose officers the Wyatt Earp was deemed a neat explosive tender, with a proviso that Mawson could borrow it if he ever got an expedition together, giving him scope to continue trying to muster academic volunteers for a coastal base he hoped to start in 1940. On his return to the USA, Lincoln Ellsworth presented Secretary of State Cordell Hull with a formal report of his claiming activities between 1935 and 1939, and announced an intention to return to Antarctica in 1941 to spend a year at the South Pole, seeing that as one of the few remaining human achievements in trailblazing available to him. The ball set rolling by Richard Black's memorandum, see subsequent episodes about the USASA, knocked his newly announced ambition to the curb. Lincoln Ellsworth never returned to Antarctica, and no one had to spend a year locked in a box with him. At Sir Hubert's urging, he made occasional disability payments to Loritz Levag, left hobbled by his injury among the Bergy bits. But Ellsworth never really paid much heed to the needs of poor people who didn't stand to serve his own immediate needs, and the payments were fitful and insufficient, much like the man himself. Lincoln Ellsworth suffered a head injury in a bad fall while out on a trail somewhere lonesome, bringing his expeditioning days to an end, and he died several years later in opulent obscurity in 1951. The Northrop Delta went on the Australian Civil Register and served the Department of Civil Aviation in testing radio installations and navigation beacons. It was impressed into the Royal Australian Air Force in 1942 and used as a military transport until written off in a takeoff accident in 1943. Where Limeburner might be a more readily recognised name today, with a polar crossing to his name, instead he went down in history as a competent aviator. I know Herbert Hollick Kenyon's not especially well recognised after the big names of Balkan and Bird and later legends such as Gus Shin and Giles Kershaw, but I can at least find out something about those other aviators' careers outside their Antarctic operations. All I can find on Limeburner is that he worked as a test pilot for Fairchild Aircraft Incorporated in Quebec throughout the Second World War. Digressionally, at the time, the Canadian branch of Fairchild manufactured bush planes derived from its US parent company's photographic survey designs and provider airframes mentioned in the series as part of Byrd's first and second Antarctic expeditions respectively. During the war, it produced trainers, bombers and dive bombers for the Royal Canadian Air Force and fighter components for the Grumman airframes in use in the Pacific Theatre. 
The company went out of business after the war, when the de Havilland Canada Beaver and Otter designs swept the market for bush planes, their superior offerings making all direct competition impossible. See postscript about Balkan in coming episodes about the USASE for more on the DHC Beaver and Otter's high-latitude aviation dominance. Wilkins never put much stock in his Australian heritage again, feeling justifiably hard done by by the country of his birth. For decades it pushed Antarctic meteorology as the key to understanding Australian weather and nulling the worst effects of the cycle of droughts and flooding rains of what later researchers came to recognise as the Southern Oscillation. Time and again, the Australian government overlooked his requests, and it was only when completely on the back foot and blindsided by their own blindness to what other nations might have planned for Antarctica, that Wilkins ever received any acknowledgement for his ideas from the nation he was born and grew up in, and which he served so conscientiously during the First World War. The 1939 adventure marked the final time Sir Hubert Wilkins travelled to Antarctica at the helm of an expedition. While he continued to conjure robust and exciting exploratory endeavours, he never again led one. Shortly after he departed Australia, the war in Europe kicked off. Wilkins' final nod to a sense of responsibility to his homeland was to volunteer for war service, but the Australian armed forces deemed him too old. Instead, he turned his energy and imagination toward encouraging the USA to support the fight against fascism. Detroit Industrial Interests funded a trip to Europe so Wilkins could report on how US manufacturing might best aid in that fight, and he boarded a Boeing Clipper flying boat bound for Lisbon in neutral Portugal as the Nazi war machine blitzkrieg through Denmark, Norway and the Low Countries. Wilkins entered France as German armoured divisions began their push toward Paris. With France rapidly surrendering and turning Vichy, Wilkins managed to land a spot aboard an Army Del Air transport, carrying French officers and a load of loot, heading for Britain. The aircraft was shot down, and Wilkins found himself in a French field being strafed by the enemy aircraft, while the French officers tried to stash their loot in a ditch. Wilkins stole a bicycle and hit the road, reaching Britain on the 16th of June in one of the final Royal Air Force aircraft to safely depart the continent before the Nazis held all the French airfields. Lord Beaverbrook arranged his return to the USA aboard a refugee ship. From the USA, Wilkins travelled to China, Burma, Japan and Singapore, witnessing the bombing of civilians in Chongqing and hearing firsthand from Japanese diplomats and military officers about the Japanese will to enforce the super-happy fun-time Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, and that the coming war might last for decades if the Japanese needed it to. The laid-back attitude taken to the looming threat by the colonial administration in Singapore alarmed Sir Hubert with good reason. His extensive report on the economic and logistic situations he saw firsthand constituted sound intelligence in the USA and Sir Hubert received regular phone calls requesting further insights and advice. Suzanne Wilkins gives herself credit for telling a caller, If you value his opinion so much, you should stop picking his brains and give him a job instead. To which the caller is alleged to have responded, That's not a bad idea. Sir Hubert spent the war years working for the Military Planning Division, providing insights into meteorology, geography, and the equipment necessary for effective operations at high latitudes 
in deserts and in jungles. His experience and advice helped the US military procurement programs overcome problems encountered in those spaces with tents, uniforms and cooking apparatus, as previously mentioned when I brewed up using one of Wilkins Coleman cookers, presently in the possession of Jeff Maynard. While capable of wielding weaponry, Sir Hubert's expertise didn't lie in state-of-the-art combat equipment, and while that stuff seems to hold the attention of a lot of war historians, and sometimes it was the weaponry that proved decisive in deciding the outcomes of battles and wars, armed forces can't fight if they can't feed, clothe or rest their personnel effectively, and Wilkins served to prop up that side of the fights against Axis nations. That's a lot of postscript, and a lot of it not especially in line with the iced coffee narrative, but I've been reading about Sir Hubert Wilkins for a long time, and I'm lingering over the opportunity to write, speak, and edit about him, as it's been a pleasure to incorporate his story into my project. He'll show up in the narrative from time to time from here on out, but this is his last big show in the Ice Coffee spotlight. Times change, and the initial conditions he started with, and the opportunities that came his way, likely won't come about again but it's hard to imagine anyone else ever again kicking high latitudes ass with the competence and tenacity George Sir Hubert Wilkins brought to the party. Photographer and shipboard colleague Sam Edmonds recently kicked off the Frank Hurley photographic competition to raise funds for the Mawson's Hut Foundation. The entries so far are astounding and I look forward to adding my contributions. The prizes are pretty cool but as with the model competitions I enter my styrene into, I'm more intent on putting my best efforts on display among a field of other people doing likewise. You can find more information at frankhurleyphotoawards.com Entries are open until October, and the competition will repeat every two years. The categories are Polar, Scenic, Composition, Nature, and Portraits of Adventure. Take care and appreciate your coffee and wear a mask and don't be an idiot.